This is the Speaking of Writers podcast. I'm Steve Richards. Few have enjoyed the degree of foreign policy influence and versatility that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. did. In the post-war era, perhaps only George Marshall, Henry Kissinger, and James Baker. Lodge, however, had the distinction of wielding that influence under presidents of both parties. For three decades, he was at the center of American foreign policy, serving as advisor to five presidents, from Dwight Eisenhower to Gerald Ford, and as ambassador to the United Nations, Vietnam, West Germany, and the Vatican. In The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. in the making of the Cold War, Luke A. Nichter brings to light previously unexamined material in telling for the first time the full story of Lodge's life and significance. Luke Nichter is professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas, and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow for 2020-2021. Nichter is a noted expert on Richard Nixon's 3,432 hours of secret White House tapes. He is the New York Times bestselling co-author with Douglas Brinkley of the Nixon Tapes, 1971-1972. A sequel volume, the Nixon Tapes, 1973, was published in 2015. His work on the Nixon Tapes was the winner of the Arthur S. Link Warren F. Kuehl Prize for Documentary Editing, awarded by the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. His website, nixontapes.org, offers free access to the publicly released Nixon Tapes as a public service. He also has a website, too, lukenichter, N-I-C-H-T-E-R dot com. Happy to have Luke Nichter join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Luke, welcome to this program. Oh, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So first off, Luke, why Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. is a subject for you? Well, you know, there, actually, uh, there, there's really no great story. Uh, I think just about everything I've worked on um, has led to the next thing. And in this case, um, you know, working for so many years on the, on the Nixon White House tapes, uh, his name kept coming up. Uh, and his name comes up on the Kennedy tapes and on the Johnson tapes making him kind of unique. I mean, over that span of time, those presidents of both parties. And finally, I think the decision to work on a book came, um, I got a call in early 2015 from the executive editor of Yale University Press, Bill Frook, who had become my editor. And he asked me, you know, what do you know about Henry Cabot Lodge Jr.? And uh, as much as I hope to feign a, an impressive answer, uh, the real truth was not very much. And he asked me, uh, what's the big book? What do you know? And I said, well, there's not much. And he said, well, would you like to propose one? And so that's really how this all got started. Luke, what was his influence on foreign policy? Oh, I say to my students that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. is the most famous person you've never heard of. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, I, and I say that because... Uh, he, this is someone who, you know, we've all heard politicians, regardless of your politics, who have said, you know, I don't want to be president or I'm not in it for myself or I'm not looking for a higher office. Um, I think Lodge is as close as you can get to the truth of a statement like that. I mean, while I think he did have some political ambition earlier in life, this is someone from a family that went back, uh, in terms of their history of public service, uh, to the Washington Adams administration, I mean, to the very beginning. This is someone who knew presidents socially, 
whose own political status um, wasn't d- didn't matter in terms of a social status that was already well established. And so I think you know who Lodge was was someone from um, a, a rec- very recognizable family, even if most people couldn't place the specifics for the reason why, who knew presidents and leaders of both parties uh, socially and very very closely from a young age, who uh, thought it more important to advise them behind the scenes than to take credit out front or to write a tell-all memoir. He left his secrets in his personal, his vast personal papers donated to the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, and I just happened to be uh, the first person fortunate enough to really mine them for their full value. Uh, so I say a, a, a behind-the-scenes jack-of-all-trades to a, a success, the series of presidents from not just Eisenhower through Ford, but even his involvement was much Truman, you know, FDR, and he plays a role for, he has a 50-year public career, and he's active at the highest levels for most of that. Chatting with Luke Nichter here on Speaking of Writers, the book is The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., and the Making of the Cold War. So I mentioned Marshall Kissinger Baker in the introduction. So where do you think he ranks, Luke? It's a tough one, you know, because, um, you know, we have these regular surveys come out about how we remember our presidents. You know, C-SPAN sponsors a big one, and there's some other ones. And, you know, I don't know how much these really are worth or what they really matter. Uh, and our opinions are changing all the time. Um, you know, we tend to rank uh, the presidents the highest. If someone's not a president, we look less on them. They're kind of a second- or third-tier figure. And so I think typically that's where we would place Lodge. Um, but I think a book like this, um, you see almost every page, you know, there's a discussion of some president or some high-level policy. Um, you know, Lodge was intimately associated with events that we've heard of. We just didn't know he was involved with them. And seeing some of them um, from his perspective actually changes how we see those events themselves. And so I think this is, very, this is a biography, but it's also very much a work of presidential history. Henry Cabot Lodge, the first person in 1943 to see Dwight Eisenhower as a potential president. He entered Eisenhower in the 52 New Hampshire primary without the candidate's knowledge and crafted his political positions and managed his campaign. How did he do that without his knowledge? Well, I think he, he got in quite a bit of hot water, or nearly did, uh, for this. Um, you know, and part of this story has been told before, but not hearing it from Lodge's perspective, the one really in the spotlight, I think makes it makes now hearing it that way makes it much more dramatic. You know, so Lodge had was a sitting senator at the time. Um, he would face reelection in 1952 against a young upstart, John F. Kennedy, and lose his Senate seat in Massachusetts um, because during that year he was distracted in 1952 by being Eisenhower's uh, campaign manager. And that was no small task. I mean, Eisenhower was not a politician by training, and he was still 4,000 miles away in France, you know, running NATO. Uh, so, you know, Lodge was chosen to run the campaign because he wasn't intimately associated with the battles between the conservatives in the Republican Party, led by Robert Taft, and the liberals, led by uh, uh, Tom Dewey, who had been the 48th candidate for the Republicans. So Lodge was seen as kind of a compromise who could bridge uh, across both halves of the party, someone acceptable, uh, uniquely so, to Eisenhower. He'd first met in 1941 during maneuvers in Louisiana. Lodge had a long U.S. Army service. He knew him during the wartime, during wartime, and their friendship was unique among politicians because it was formed in the, in the fire of World War II. 
So Lodge was a natural fit for the position of Eisenhower's campaign manager, and he knew the deadline was coming up in early January to file for that first primary, which back then was New Hampshire, not Iowa. And uh, the, the governor, Sherman Adams, said, you've got to make your decision. And so Lodge went ahead and did it. Um, people weren't even sure at the time whether Eisenhower was a Democrat or Republican. There was speculation that he could run on, on either can, uh, on either ticket because his policies were so middle of the road. So Lodge called a press conference on January 6th of 1950-52, and he not only announced that, that Eisenhower was running, but he announced that he, he'd run as a Republican and he would be entered in the New Hampshire primary, and Eisenhower only had one choice. At that time, if, if any, anyone's entered in the primary in New Hampshire, they're on the ballot unless they refute it. And so Eisenhower, through his silence, uh, would, would be on the ballot. And he was, his diary shows, as I show in the book, he was, he was awfully hot. I mean, Lodge was in hot water as a result of this. Uh, but Eisenhower uh, released this very kind of tepid statement that what Mr. Lodge said was mostly in accord with my own views. And the rest is history. And Eisenhower was on the ballot. And Eisenhower, of course, gets elected. And in the 50s, as U.N. Ambassador Lodge was effectively a second secretary of state. We're chatting with uh, Luke Nichter here on Speaking of Writers. His book is The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., and the Making of the Cold War. Luke, we move to the 60s now. He's called twice by JFK and Lyndon Johnson. What was that all about? Yeah, so I think Lodge uh, was kind of an old-fashioned patriot, and, you know, he, he was called upon, by, he gave some of his best years of public service for uh, Democratic presidents. I mean, Lodge was a very kind of middle-of-the-road, you know, Massachusetts Republican. When we think of kind of Northeastern Republicans, he fits that mold very well. And um, uh, he, he, he made it clear to, to the Kennedy administration early on that he would be available for some role um, if, uh, if, the, if the right role came about. He assumed a Democrat would be in office for eight years, just as Eisenhower had been. And by that point, Lodge said, well, I'll be in my late 60s. It's, it's too far enough away into the future for me to get a high-ranking appointment under a Republican. I, I make myself available to the Democrats. And uh, as it turns out, he, he sure did. Uh, he got an appointment uh, two times to, as our ambassador in Vietnam, uh, largely viewed as the most difficult uh, foreign, uh, foreign policy assignment in the government overseas at the time. And he's there uh, during really a, uh, a kind of a very turbulent period when American involvement deepened, and it really became kind of a, a major war. And for more than a half century, the consensus has been that, that President Kennedy had no advanced knowledge of the coup that destabilized the Republic of Vietnam and led to the deployment of the first U.S. combat troops. In the book, you reveal that Kennedy's authorization to lodge a remarkable discovery changes our understanding of this chapter in American history. Yeah, the recording is interesting. You know, I, I think it's it's. I, I definitely um, I don't think it's going to be the, the, the final word on this. Um, it's another important piece of the puzzle. You know, with the declassification, it just takes so many decades to get records. And in this case, what we're talking about is, um, you know, in the last 10 years, some other tapes and documents have surfaced uh, from later in 63, shortly before Kennedy's own um, assassination, that suggest, kind of hint at a greater level of involvement in the coup that toppled South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem on uh, November 1st and 2nd, 1963, just kind of hinted that, you know, there's maybe more to the story. And so here I happen to... Um, 
discover this recording that's kind of hiding in plain sight that, that um, the Kennedy Library told me they, they didn't think anyone had ever used or transcribed or published before. And I, I kind of, you know, I, when, I, when I found it, you know, I think an, an author who discovers something in the archives has a tendency to kind of be thrilled and exhilarated. And in fact, I was, I was terrified because I was, I was terrified because I, 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 the potential that this was so important. I wanted to make sure I got it right, not to come to conclusions that were overstated, but also not to understate its importance. And so what I conclude in the book is that this recording from uh, August 15th of 1963, it's Lodge's farewell in the Oval Office one-on-one with Kennedy before he even goes to Vietnam for the first time, I mean, a few months before the, the coup takes place. I interpret to be not quite an order for a coup, uh, but Kennedy's green light that, that upon arrival in Saigon, he has approval for Lodge to, to talk to the coup plotters, to look, look into the possibility of a coup, and ultimately uh, that Kennedy was not completely caught by surprise by the coup when it happened two and a half months later, but that in fact this recording shows is that he was willing to he was willing to tolerate a coup or to accept a coup as U.S. policy under certain conditions. And that's, that's the part that's really new. There's been nothing this early, even before Lodge went to Saigon, which leads us to believe that the coup was really kind of baked into the appointment of Lodge in the first place. In our remaining moments with Luke Nichter, his book is The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and the Making of the Cold War. What do you think Lodge's legacy is, Luke? Oh gosh, I'm I'm certainly not so uh, uh, arrogant to think that uh, uh, that I will have the last word. You know, I think Lodge started as an enigma in this project. He really went out of his way to eschew public attention. He was chased by eight editors uh, to write a tell-all memoir or a comprehensive history of his life, um, and he wasn't going to do that. He did write two brief memoirs uh, for Evan Thomas II. Uh, of Harper and Rowe, and then went over to Norton. You know, so I think I, I clear away some of the mystery with a book like this, but I think Lodge, even at the very end, um, I come away with this. Um, he, he's kind of a combination of Where's Waldo, um, kind of a James Bond, Cold War figure, and a Forrest Gump in terms of the people he knew and the events that he was involved with. But I think even when you turn the final page, there's still just a bit of mystery to him, an enigma, where you haven't quite figured him out exactly, and I think that's how he'd want it. Are you working on another book? Well, one thing leads to another. And if the Nixon tapes taught me how little we knew about this figure who was deserving of a biography, uh, what this uh, taught me was how little we really know about the year 1968, uh, with as many books as there already are about that fascinating year, which I think, again today, has so many recurrences and memories and parallels. And I think um, I, I, I'm, what I'm working on now is a similar approach, a kind of deep dive in the archives, you know, all around the world, you know, like Lodge. If you want to talk about where Lodge met Eisenhower during the war, to me, you've got to go to Algier and stand at the St. George Hotel at the top of the hill and look down on the Cosbah and the harbor and really to know how it happened. And so I'm trying to take a similar approach to that. Uh, and I've got cooperation of all four major sides with 68, Johnson, Humphrey, Nixon, and Wallace. And so that's what I'm working on now for the next few years. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. And this is Speaking of Writers.